What's up, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another week of the Big Digital Energy Podcast with me, Fraxlap, and my host, Chuck Yates. We got a busy week. Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right, BD audience, here we are. Number one story of the week. We get to go fanboy on Tesla. Tesla's on fire. Tesla officially yesterday became the sixth company to be worth a trillion dollars. Stock surged on a big deal with Hertz, whereby Hertz is going to buy 100,000 cars, $3.4 billion, $4.3 billion of the Model 3s, and customers are going to be able to rent these things as soon as November. So we've got that going on. At the same time, Elon Musk announced the release of the full self-driving beta version 10.3.1, which followed a rollback of some bugs found in version 10.3, which was released on Sunday. The company also announced a big R&D center at the Gigafactory complex in Shanghai. Colin, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, first, I think this is like meme stock inception, right? So yeah, it hurts, <laughs> which, you know, was in the headlines last year in 2020, um, just, you know, being pumped as they announced bankruptcy and all the retail investors pour into it and pump up the stock. And so to see where we're at today with... So this is like a marriage. It is, it is. It's <laughs> Elon like, Musk and, <laughs> and meme stock, like, dude. All right. It's like the uh, Reddit traders are making this... Uh, just, it's like, it's kind of like a prophecy, like being fulfilled. It's like Hertz and Tesla in um, one. But dun, dun, I, saw, I saw an interesting uh, tweet from Elon Musk talking about how he thought it was... Um, this isn't quoting him verbatim, but this is along the same lines of what he said was that he thought it was strange that Tesla stock was pumping on the news of the Hertz deal because Tesla's never had a demand issue. It's always had a supply issue. And so what he was implying with that was that uh, there's heavy demand for Tesla cars. They just don't have the ability to make enough. And so people on Twitter were kind of uh, taking shots at him for that, saying that doing a deal with a rental car company is actually not a sign of high demand, that it's a sign of desperation. So, um, you know, some people are celebrating it, saying it's a huge deal for Tesla and it's bullish. And then you have the Elon haters on Twitter saying that's a sign of desperation. Um, I don't know what to make out of it. You know, I don't think that it means one thing or another. I mean, a, a multi-billion dollar deal is a multi-billion dollar deal, right? Yeah, I, I had someone that wanted to buy $4.3 billion. Dollars, I'm going <laughs> right. to take it. Yeah, for sure. So. But do this, Colin. Talk to me about the automated driving stuff because I'm confused there. Does it work? Is it not going to work? What does that mean? Yeah, you know, I was I was talking to some people yesterday online about this because essentially the way that they took it is okay. Elon and Tesla are running beta tests on automated driving on the roads, which, to be fair, isn't isn't far off from the truth. But my thing is, is that we let a bunch of knuckle draggers drive 3,000 pound death machines around us every day. I mean, if you look at 
the normal human's intelligence and they're allowed behind the wheel of a car and we're perfectly fine with that. So I'm bullish on automated driving. I mean, the most dangerous activity that we participate in on a day-to-day basis is driving. Go out on I-10 on the Katy Freeway. It's like the fucking Thunderdome out there when you get out there, right? And I have a lot of friends that love Tesla's automated driving assist and, you know, they'll take it on 45. I mean, you had one. I don't know if you ever used automated driving I was too scared. You were too scared? I really was. Chuck has, well, Chuck has, I have all sorts of issues, <laughs> but no, the, uh, the thing I had always heard about the automated driving is it wasn't the software and let's call it the intelligence about it. It was the sensors mm-hmm. knowing exactly where you were and that the sensors on an automated drive driving car were about on par with a drunk sophomore in college driving. Yeah. And believe it or not, I mean, not I'm not condoning drunk driving, but drunk sophomores, drunk sophomores actually good. <laughs> drive okay, relatively speaking, to uh, to folks. And so that's why I've always been scared. Yeah, the um, you know I was talking to a friend the other day that has a Tesla, and she said that when the sun sets and the sky's red, that sometimes the Tesla thinks that it's a red light, and so she has to disable it, or else it'll keep trying to stop. And so really? there's definitely. Yeah, there's definitely some, um, it's going through beta, right? Like automated driving, it's fairly new technology. I was in Vegas, I think it was before COVID, let's say 2019, and Lyft has started rolling out automated uh, cars. And so I was at the Las Vegas Convention Center, I'd pull up Lyft and say, are you comfortable with an automated car? And I was like, hell yeah, I am, let's do it. (laughs) And anyways, they picked me up, they've got this super computer in the back. And then what was really cool about it is on their center uh, console, they were showing uh, all the data that it's crunching and processing. And of course, they had a driver in the driver's seat, and then they had another uh, co-driver in the passenger seat. And thought it was really cool. I used it on several trips, but there was one where a car pulled out, and the driver kicked in, hit the brake. And I was like, I don't think the uh, computer would have picked that up. He's like, no, no, it would. I was just doing that to be safe. And I was like, I don't think it would have. But, you know, I'm I think, one, we need the technology because we need to make roads safer. And one thing that I don't see a lot of people talk about is the weight of electric vehicles. These cars weigh a lot more than internal combustion engines. And you see how dangerous driving is currently. Imagine we get all these people behind EVs that weigh significantly more. I mean, that's just going to increase the uh the uh, likelihood of fatalities and wrecks. So we need computers to be driving cars. That's last my, that's la- last thing I'll say about this is Malcolm Gladwell has a great podcast in the last season talking about automated driving cars. And, you know, when you're walking across the road, you don't walk across the road because you don't know if the idiot driver is going to stop or not. If we all have automated cars, we will walk across the road because we know the sensors will pick it up and it will stop for us. Yeah. And so he actually had an interesting take on, is it going to be possible to actually have automated driving given that people will go, eh, they got to stop. Right? Yeah. The guy has a great point on the uh, Hertz deal. He said, I have no desire to spend my vacation renting a Tesla and looking for a charge port and then waiting on it to charge while on vacation. Also brought up another interesting point that uh, someone on Twitter said yesterday. I can't remember who it was, but he's like, you know, do you want to wait 45 minutes to charge your rental car while you're on the way to the airport and you're in a hurry? Or are you just going to pay the prepaid charging price? And I don't know what that prepaid charging price Instead is Instead of 15 be. cents? I rented, a, yeah, cents. I rented a rental car the other day and it was like $150 was the penalty for not filling up. And I was like, shit, I'll just go 
drive to the gas station real quick and put 30 bucks in it. So that is a good point is when you're returning the car, how are you going to charge it? Okay. We'll Last thing we'll say hurts. If you make us charge before we bring it back, fuck you, dude. <laughs> You'll get finger of the week. There we go. You'll get finger of the week, guaranteed. All right. Enough about Tesla. Let's move over to some oil and gas news. We got our favorite, one of our favorite companies to talk about, Exxon. Boom, 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 under pressure. All right, so Exxon is in the news like they are every single week. This week, it's about carbon capture projects. So they got some projects going on in Asia and uh, also in Wyoming, too. So they've been contemplating delays at a multi-billion dollar hydrocarbon project, um, LNG in Mozambique. Is that correct? That is correct. And I got three takes on this, Colin. One, I know I've said it on the podcast before. I'll say it again. The three engine number one board members that were elected went to college with one of them, a guy named Andy Karsner. Andy is smart. He's a force to be reckoned with. He's always been a wind power guy. So this is not surprising to me that traditional oil and gas LNG project in Mozambique and a natural gas project in Vietnam, they're reexamining that, whether to spend that capital doesn't surprise me. I told, uh, I said when he got elected that the Exxon board was going to have their hands full with Andy. And I think this is kind of evidence of it happening. So that's number one. Number two, I have Kathleen Kelly coming on the podcast that I'll release tomorrow on Chuck Yates needs a job. She's known as the OPEC whisperer. She's been advisor to the top levels of OPEC for more than a, a decade. She's got her model for oil demand and supply and it basically lays out that we're going to hit a hundred dollars a barrel this year next year at the end of 2022 we're actually going to be oversupplied on oil so we may see 50 but she said after that all bets are off because that will be all of the excess supply in the world which is basically housed in opec which is really housed in saudi and the reason i bring this up is if we are going to take arguably the number one oil finder, oil producer in the world, Exxon, out of the game and stop looking for hydrocarbons and start doing uh, transition type stuff, that's a big freaking deal in two or three years if Exxon's not out looking for oil. So we need to be watching that. And then the other thing that I'll say that I think these stories highlight is we're sitting here as investors and we're seeing the commodity shortfall and we're seeing the fact that oil prices are going to go up. If we want to make that bet, I don't know that we can do it with the majors anymore. If they're going to stop looking for hydrocarbons, if they're going to be doing transition and carbon capture and that type stuff, you're not going to see the oil price run in those guys. And so it's going to be an interesting dynamic. And do we see rotation out of the majors and into guys like Diamondback, et cetera, because those folks are still hydrocarbon based. So my three hot takes on we should Exxon have, this um, week. We should have put this under a shotgun wedding segment. <laughs> yeah, we should have had Exxon under always, a shotgun wedding. We may have to go back We'll in. tweet that out today. Shotgun that. Wedding. that was genius, by the way. I really <laughs> like that video. All right. Well, we'll get into your next uh, favorite segment. What say you? What say you? All right. 
I think uh, this is Chuck's favorite segment just because of the uh, video he created I for like, it. So I like my hair in that one, actually. <laughs> you have pretty hair. I like Thank it. Thank you much. All right. So we seem to have a rash of Chuck-related SPAC stories. First is the Kane Anderson SPAC. Altus Midstream merged with BCP Raptor, private midstream company backed by Blackstone and I squared. Chuck, what do you say about this one? Uh, we, you know, we also had some more breaking news um, in the in the M and A space for midstream. Why don't you riff on it and tell us what it all means? Well, for the second week in a row, and I hate to do this, but the Altus merger, bah. Um, <laughs> Basically, and I guess I need to say this since I'm playing Kramer, the Chuck Yates Family 2008 Trust owns Altus Midstream. But the other <laughs> thing for the record is I didn't actually work on this deal at Kane. Our, the confidentiality agreement said that if you looked at this deal, you had to stay out of certain counties in the Permian. So my group just couldn't look at it. So folks out there know way more about this. But um, anyway... I think the key is the market wanted to see midstream and wants to see consolidation. Uh, I'm going to pull up the stock price here real quick, or the the uh, Altus stock price. You see they were basically at 10 as a SPAC. They did the deal. It kind of went into free fall. It was actually a deal with Apache to build up the midstream for Alpine High. Right there, just at the end, you saw the stock price bump up on rumors of the deal, and the market just hadn't liked this deal much. It's in effect, the whole story there is it's now a combined $9 billion enterprise, pure play Delaware Basin Company, 850,000 acres. But really, this was just a way for Eagle Claw to go public. So I think Mr. Skilling on Twitter said it best. We want consolidation. We want consolidation. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> I think how he said it. Now, that being said, you look at Bob Phillips over at Crestwood buying Oasis Midstream, and this deal's hot off the press. Uh, looks like Crestwood's down 2% or so on the news. Oasis is up a buck on this. So interesting. I've, we'll have to see details on this deal so we can come back with some takes on it. I got two funny stories. One, we backed Bob Phillips at Kane Anderson. And the thing I love about Bob, he's a great guy. And uh, anyone you mention, though, that's been in midstream. So it's like, hey, Colin McClellan. Bob always says, I gave that guy his start in the business. <laughs> so one. But at number two, this is another feather in the hat for Doug Brooks. Doug uh, has had a, a run of he cleaned up Yates and got it sold to EOG. He uh, came in for uh, the offshore company, uh, what was it, Century 21, got that cleaned up, got it sold. He was brought into the board of Oasis. Now what he's done is he's gotten the midstream sold. He's got a pure play oil and gas company in the Bakken because he sold off the Delaware and they added some assets. So that is Oasis is sitting there saying, buy me now, too. So yeah. another kudos to, uh, to Doug Brooks. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see in the midstream space. I think Heart Energy had put out an article the other other day talking about how uh, midstream consolidation was imminent. And I think Bomber, uh, Blake Street Bomber, didn't agree with it. And then since then, we've seen two M&A deals. So it'd be interesting to hear Bomber's take on what's happening. And 
you brought up, you know, the performance and the uh, public equity market. It doesn't seem like the market really likes these deals. You know, if you're the management team, you're like, hell yeah, we got a deal done. And then the market <laughs> just shits on you. And it's like, no, we don't like it. <laughs> well, I think maybe the way to put it is the market is expecting you to do these deals. And if you don't, <laughs> we'll see what kind of relative performance happens. Because clearly, I mean, in the midstream space, as in the EMP space, and I hate to say this for the humanity side of it, but there's just too much GNA. There yeah. is. So we've uh, also had some M&A uh, activity in the fracking world. What's going on over there? So this is teeing up for you. I rarely find it appropriate to quote Bon Jovi. <laughs> but who says you can't go back home again? Uh, the Wilkes brothers have agreed to buy FTS International, which is really just the rebranded name for Frac Tech for just over $400 million. Colin, what say you about this? Yeah, so shout out to my homie, Lad Wilkes over at uh, ProFrac for getting this deal done. You know, if you don't know the history, the Wilkes uh, family had sold their stake in Frac Tech, I think it was back in- uh, 2007. 2007, okay, for three and a half billion dollars. And so this is like, to me, this is like a founder's wet dream. You sell your company for a few billion dollars, they run it into the ground, and then a few, you know, a decade later, you come back around and you scoop it <laughs> back up. Uh, it, it usually always works out great. And so I think that um, it's interesting. You know, they have they have a month to find another buyer, which I thought was um, kind of an interesting clause on the deal. You know, what? Why would why would you do that? Why would you allow another another month to so we probably we probably ought to ask, but I mean, one of the reasons may be your FTS, you're a public company, you've got to be able to tell your shareholders, this is the best deal out there. We tried. So a lot of times you run an auction. If you have a negotiated deal like this, potentially that was the ask of FTS to just say, hey, let us go try to find another buyer. And there's probably a breakup fee associated with this if the Wilkes brothers don't get it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, if you look at a lot of people are talking about EMPs having capital discipline and that's the reason for rig count not surging. And from all of my conversations, EMPs want to drill, but the price of pipe is surging and the availability of rigs and frack spreads is also uh, lacking just due to, um, you know, shortage of crews and equipment. And so I think that, you know, the time is now if you're looking to make a move in the OFS space as, you know, if you're operating a company, if you can consolidate, I think that there's going to be a wave to ride over the next few years. So I like the deal. Like I said, you know, if you can sell the company for nearly $4 billion and circle back and scoop it, scoop it up for 400 million, that's uh, a, that's pretty sweet. So, 10 cents on the dollar, man. Yeah. You like that, particularly with the compounding interest effect of 2007. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Colin, issue number two under What Say You? We look at who just showed up to the net zero party. Can I uh, get a little drum roll, please? Uh, Saudi Arabia? <laughs> what say you about all this? Well, what stood out to me about Saudi Arabia's net zero pledge was that it was 2060. It wasn't 2050 or 2040, like everyone else's net zero pledge. You're like, yeah, hey, we'll do this, but 
we're gonna say 2060 because in the end it's an arbitrary number and none of it matters it's yeah. like you know <laughs> none of the points none of the years matter here so we're just gonna say 2060 to get y'all off of our back and did um, they go first with 2060 or did putin i like how they kind of did it together it was yeah, sort of that collective f you to the rest of the world if you don't think that saudi arabia and putin are collaborating to troll the world then <laughs> you're wet behind the ears because I, I definitely think that that's what's happening so yeah you know it'll, it'll be interesting when you see uh, a, a state or a country that is fully dependent on oil and gas making this pledge and actually i saw john Ar john arnold send out a tweet um saying something to the effect of how it was just kind of goofy like it kind of just shows how like none of the none of these pledges have substance when you have Saudi Arabia saying, "Hey, we're going to pledge to be net zero by 2060." Like, does anyone believe that Saudi Arabia really cares? Yeah, I know you calculate the uh, current ruler's lifespan, and let's add five years to it. <laughs> yeah. Sure, we'll be there. The one thing I will say about this that might be some good coming of this is they did put carbon capture at the forefront of all this. And so I do think as a practical matter, that's an important part of this. So maybe Saudi Arabia talking about it, maybe if they actually invest some dollars on that, that could be a good thing that comes out of this. Yeah, Kermit Andrews uh, chimed in and said, capital discipline, laughing my ass off. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. Like. <laughs> You have $85 oil and you think that these guys aren't chomping at the bit to start start drilling drilling some wells. Come on. It's a it's a great quote on a, the podcast I dropped tomorrow with Kathleen Kelly. I was talking about, well, you know, if inventories are so tight, why don't they add some more ease into it? She's like, nah, they see it's going to be under uh, oversupplied in about you know 18 months. They're going to take the money. They're yeah. taking the money. Absolutely. All right. Let's get into our next seg segment underappreciated story of the week. I love the uh, jalapeno and pineapple pizza graphic you got in there. People watch that and just like, what the fuck does this mean? It's underappreciated. It's the most you, underappreciated you culinary that. delight of our lifetime. Exactly. So what do we got? What's underappreciated this week? So, Here's something that I just want to put on people's radar screen. The crude oil supplies at Cushing have been rapidly declining. They think there are 31 million barrels of oil there. Operational kind of floor for Cushing to be able to run is 20 million barrels uh, of operating capacity, operating inventory. Here's why this is important. All of the financial trades, and they're like 10x financial trades versus physical trades, settle at Cushing. So Cushing is going to have to pay up for barrels to be there to settle these financial trades. I think what you see is the price of oil at Cushing going up, but it may not be realized in other parts of the country because at the end of the day, it's going to be Cushing paying up to get those barrels there to have it settle versus going to a refinery. At the end of the day, operational in our nation, nothing will happen. Oil will get refined. Gasoline will be available. It just might cause some funny price disparity between Cushing and the rest of the world. All right. We'll keep an eye on that and see what it looks like. Hey, I know you wanted to give a uh, tribute real quick to uh, Steve Toon. Why don't you get into that? Yeah, no, I just, uh, our heart goes out to our friends at Heart Energy, the tragic 
uh, death of Steve Toon, unexpected death, had a uh, had a heart attack this weekend. And, you know, he was the longtime editor of the oil and gas investor, always there with a smile, always there with a handshake, a really good dude. And like I said, all of us at Digital Wildcatters, thoughts and prayers go out to you guys at Heart Energy and his family. Yeah, that's terrible news. We're thinking about you guys. All right. That is this week's show. We got my favorite segment, though, That's before my we end favorite. out. Yeah. It's my is it favorite, favorite segment, segment too? too. I'm I'm down with this. All right, guys. Let's get into our last segment before we end this thing out. All right, this week's finger of the week goes to Dr. Fauci for killing puppies. And let me be the first to say, like, I believe human life is more important than dog life, but the internet is outraged over Fauci's gain of function research killing beagles. Man, I, you know, I don't think Fauci just needs the finger of the week. I think he needs like the finger of the decade for the, the last two years. So Oilfield Rando, I think, sent out this tweet, and it echoes something my dad said this weekend. Of all the stuff he did during the pandemic, the misguided medical advice, the shutdowns and all that, we're going to lose it because he kills a puppy? (laughs) (laughs) But I agree with you. You Puppies are cute. You saw what happened to uh, Michael Vick for uh, dog violence. So they'll, they'll get you. Two, uh, two years. Yeah. What uh, what gets me, though, is that, you know, the majority of Twitter a year and a half ago thought that um, COVID was derived from a guy eating a bat at a wet market in Wuhan. And it's very clearly becoming that <laughs> that wasn't the case. And it's like, hey, all of this has happened, but it's the beagles that, you know, it's just the, the tipping point. Like, you don't fuck with the beagles, man. Yeah, so that's it. So, Colin, real quick before we close. What's going on Wednesday night? And then tell me what's going on November 16th through the 18th. Yep. Tomorrow night, we got Energy Tech Night in Houston. If you haven't got tickets, they're available on our website. We are opening the doors. We're shifting the schedule a little bit. The the Astros kind of screwed up our plans. They didn't screw up our plans. They added to our plans. So we're going to open the doors at 5 o'clock. Show starts right at 6. And we're anticipating ending it around 745. That way we can put the Astros game up on the big screen TV and have a watch party. So come by. We'll have drinks, food, uh, Astros baseball, and just a bunch of cool people in energy. And then November 16th to 18th, we have our new wave event, which applications are closing. Uh, the window's closing for that. So you can go to our website and find that. And then we'll be back here next Tuesday. Next Tuesday a.m. Every Tuesday, except last Tuesday. We didn't make it last Tuesday because we were out of town. There was a run of show written at 7.30 in the morning in Midland in a hotel room while for BDE. While I just hung- wanted to know. While you were hungover. No, I think I was still drunk. But anyway. <laughs> All right, guys. Catch us next week.